If I were to hand you a screwdriver right now, would you be able to open up your phone and completely replace the screen? Yes, this week on Download This Show, for the longest time, Apple iPhone users were actively discouraged from doing exactly what I just described, but that is about to change. Plus, Tinder and police launch a new campaign to combat assaults. Is it enough? And what can other dating apps learn from this? The almighty power of the singer Adele to make Spotify do something that it's never done before. And what exciting new technological trend just got banned in Indonesia. All of that and much more coming up. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed, it is a brand new episode of Download This Show and joining us from The Guardian, Josh Taylor. Welcome back. Great to be back. And she is the West Coast's finest social media strategist who doesn't have always nice things to say about social media. Meg Coffee, welcome back to Download This Show. Oh, thank you. I love that intro. <laughs> I've been endorsing you for sus attitudes to social media, but we'll tell you how not to screw it up. <laughs> Lots of discussion in the wider news world this week about the uh, musical artist Adele. But specifically this week, I want to talk about the impact she's having on the music streaming service Spotify. What has she changed, Meg? Well, this is actually kind of exciting. So the, the default feature in Spotify when you listen to albums was Shuffle. And Adele has said, whoa, wait a second. We don't put all this time and effort into creating our albums for you to listen to them on Shuffle. So if you're going to have my music, you must listen to it in the order that I put the track list together. Yeah, so I definitely caught myself up a few times where I'd, I'd hit that button by accident when I was starting to play an album or something like that and then noticed that the track order was completely wrong and I'm like, why is this playing now and why isn't this this the default? It's something that Spotify has had in place for a while and they're, um, I, I guess that it's kind of gearing people towards playlists and, and, and using the shuffle as an automatic feature but I think this is a really good move by them and it's something they should have done a long time ago. The one thing that's sort of missing and it's, it's no one has sort of bridged the gap between Spotify and YouTube, I think. So I think there is room for more visualization on Spotify's platform and they haven't really figured out how to do it like if when you're watching a when you've got like Spotify on and in the background there's no visualization if you're playing it through your TV you don't have the the music clips or anything like that I think there's probably more that they can do around there that I would like to see them do but I I think it probably comes with a lot more expense for them as well so that's probably why they're holding off on it Mm. yeah I agree the TV bit would would be cool because I do sometimes like when I'm cleaning the house I'll run it through the TV and I'd probably get distracted but it would still be nice to have that visual Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. From The Guardian this week, we have Josh Taylor and social media strategist Meg Coffey. Mark Fennell is my name. And for the longest time, if you wanted to repair something about your Apple product, you'd have to take it back to, well, Apple. Or in most cases, you do what a lot of people do, which is you just either let it fall apart or you just buy a new one. But that is, Josh, potentially about to change. Apple are going to start selling parts for customers to repair their own iPhones. Why has this happened? So I think there's a couple of reasons for this. So firstly, there's a bit of a chip shortage around. So I imagine that there's a desire with Apple in particular to make people's devices last, you know, two years, people not sort of going out and buying the new ones. As much as they do want people to go out and buy the new ones when they need a new phone, there's probably a bit more of an incentive for people to have devices that are a bit more repairable. The other thing is that they're, I, I think they're increasingly facing regulatory pressure, both in Australia and the US and in other parts of the world, 
to allow people to have the right to repair their own devices. And that's something that they've fought against for quite a long time in terms of they don't want people to avoid the warranty, they don't want people to go to third-party repairs and things like that. I think that it's quite a good move that they're, they're doing it because we've had a the right to repair productivity commission report here looking at the same thing and like a lot of the submissions to that were basically all centered around apple saying that apple is increasing and making it harder to do repairs so i think this is a really good move it's good that they've they've essentially just chosen sort of the easiest parts to replace and also the parts that are most likely to fail so i, I think this is a really good start for them actually on that just so people know what are the parts that they've opted to make easily replaceable it's the camera, the battery, and the screen. So yep. that, that those are the ones that you're most likely to break it accidentally. But only on the, the, the latest models. But only on the latest yeah, models. Yeah, so it's only on the 12 and the 13. So I guess the other thing that's concurrent to the regulatory pressures around Meg is the fact that Apple, particularly in the sort of last five to ten years, have really started selling themselves into the marketplace as a really green organisation. And an organisation that sells itself as being environmentally friendly but also forces you to buy a whole new device or, you know, go to a third-party person if you want to repair it. I think you could probably get a sense that those two streams of thought were intention. Is is some of this about them bolstering their green credentials? Oh, maybe... The cynic in me says no. Maybe they might say that it's about that and, and trying to, you know, longevity and not have any things, as many things go to waste. But no, I think this is more to to avoid the regulatory pressure that they were getting um, and also just to make it seem like they, they care about their customers more than they do. And like you said, there's a chip shortage. So it's in their best interest to sort of lengthen this a little bit longer so they don't get called out and not be able to sell new products at all. Josh, one of the biggest issues with replace, because, I mean, you, you technically have always been able to get an Apple product repaired. You just need to go either to them or to a third-party supplier. And, of course, the moment you go to a, a third-party repairer, usually your warranty was voided. Is there any sense of how these changes will impact warranties? I don't think it's going to impact warranty too much. I mean, um, Australian consumer law is strong enough that if you take it to a third-party reseller, then you should still be covered by warranty automatically. So if you're getting it repaired by someone who just gets the parts elsewhere, I think it'll be even better now because those those repairers will have much greater access to the parts where, as before, there's a whole program that they have to sign up for. Often they find that the replacement parts are just as expensive as as you know someone taking their phone back to Apple. So that it's really hard to compete with them. I think the other thing is that's important to note here is that you know for for us people who live in in metropolitan cities it is actually not that difficult for us to just go to an apple store to go get it fixed from apple themselves but i often found when i was when i've been reporting on right to repair stuff that a lot of people who live in regional and remote parts of australia it's much harder for them to actually you know they have to ship their device off to apple and it takes much more time if they can get these parts sent to them then that's mm. a bit a bit better for them to do it themselves the uh, the apple parts will come with an explainer of essentially how to do it and people can look at look up you know youtube videos and things like that to sort of explain how to do it but i think my advice would be if you're a bit worried about your skills in in doing this sort of thing then maybe don't do it yourself maybe it's something you get someone else to do would you give it a go or would you still take it over to a professional I think um, in terms of like, because I've, I've built computers before, it is my background in technology, doing this sort of stuff before, would I feel comfortable with doing that with a device that I need to live and work? Uh, maybe not. But um... <laughs> That's not where I thought you were going with that sentence. I thought you were like, I've, I've made them before. <laughs> I'm, I'm good. I put me in coach. No, you still wouldn't. I, I don't know if I trust myself enough. If it was like a hobby thing, maybe I'd go and try it to repair just for something fun to do. But I don't think I would do it for something that is so critical to my daily life. And you're a hard pass, uh, Meg? 
Yeah, I'm I'm the same. I rely on my phone far too much for me to mess it up, and I guarantee I would mess it up. Your relationship with your phone is is a complicated one, right? Because you do rely on it for so much. And I notice any time it's ever like broken or inaccessible in some way, shape, or form, it's probably saying more about me than it is anything. There is like this this inexplicable anxiety that kicks into gear, and I and I I never thought about the different kind of anxiety that would come from sitting there opening it up and and trusting myself to fix it that's a that's a whole new kind of anxiety i'm not prepared for josh it'd be like having heart surgery on your pet you wouldn't want to do it yourself essentially oh god no no there's professionals leave it to the professionals way to raise the stakes josh (laughs) download this show is the name of the program it is your guide to the week in media technology and culture mark fennell is my name i guess this week josh taylor from the guardian and meg coffee from the internet's social media strategist is what she actually does interesting news out of queensland this week uh queensland police and tinder the dating service, have announced that they're joining forces, they say, to combat sexual assaults on dating apps. But Meg, what does that actually mean? So, look, I think this is great. From from the sounds of it, what they're going to be doing is putting up these sort of um, warning messages. So as you're swiping left or right, instead of a profile coming up, you'll get this sort of a warning message that just says, you know, if, if something's wrong, here's how you report it, or don't be afraid to report it. Here's some signs on keeping yourself safe. There's a series of, of different messages that they're going to put up, but it's all about making sure that you are protecting yourself, and then should something happen, giving you the, the resources to go and report that, and pushing that message that you do need to report it if anything goes wrong, if anything makes you feel uncomfortable. I think it's it, it's good to, I guess, raise awareness as these campaigns often do um, and, and informing people of what their avenues of, of being able to report these things are. I think that it would be interesting to see more what's going on in the background, what's Tinder doing in terms of like if you have people who are known, known abusers, what you're doing to prevent them from having accounts or, or, you know, if you have multiple women making multiple reports and things like that, how those are investigated, how that all sort of works. It is important to make sure people are aware of, of how they can report this, but also not also place all the work on the victims, essentially. So I think I'd be very interested to know what Tinder's doing in the background with Queensland Police on this. I guess my question with this is, you know, there's a big shiny announcement and everybody knows that for a long time Tinder have needed to deal with this. But my question is why, in terms of what they specifically announced, I don't understand why the police necessarily needed to be involved because in part all they're doing is, is informing their user base that they should report things. Isn't this something they could have done by themselves worldwide already, Meg? Oh, yeah, definitely. And I'm, I'm with you. Why is it the Queensland police and not the federal police? Why isn't it Australia-wide? Why is it the police at all? It should be the platform itself giving you the tools to say, look, if you feel unsafe or, or things are happening, report it. The fascination for me is like if, if all they're doing at this stage, at least that we can see, is an awareness campaign, could they not have done that earlier, Josh? I think it's probably, it makes sense to involve the police in this because I feel like a lot of the time when people come forward to report these things that have occurred through an app like Tinder, there is a perception within the community a lot of the time that police will shrug it off or won't do anything, don't won't take it seriously. Mm-hmm. And maybe by partnering with police, it gives them a bit more of a like, yes, we are actually taking this seriously. We do want to hear from you when this sort of stuff happens. So maybe that's that's the logic there. I think anything that we can do to to raise awareness and make people 
feel comfortable that if they report, they will be listened to and, and make them feel comfortable that they can report. I do like what Josh said, though. It seems like a lot of this is put on the victim as opposed to the apps taking charge and going, look, this is how we're going to stop repeat offenders or this is how we're going to how we're going to handle things. Josh, you alluded to this a little bit earlier, but what are the sorts of things you would like to know that they're doing behind the scenes that would make a difference for you? Yeah, I think it just comes down to transparency. I think it would be good to see from Tinder, you know, how many reports they're getting, what they're doing with them, what actions they've taken, just to not only just sort of give us a bit of a better understanding of of what's going on behind the scenes, but also to, I guess, give people who want to report these things a bit more confidence that when they do report this, it's going to be taken seriously and, and the apps are going to be working with law enforcement to help facilitate investigations and everything like that. As part of this, they've released a safety guide. What do you make of the of the safety guide, Meg? I, th- I think it's good. I mean, again, it's anything more. The more times we explain it, the more times we say it, um, you know, the more times we, we reiterate, you know, tell people where you're going, screenshot who, who you're chatting with, go to public places. I think these things, we, we just need to keep saying them. And, and the more times we say them, the more chance that they will be listened to. And, and the more advice we can give people, hopefully the better, the better we'll be. One of the interesting things, Josh, is that um, if Tinder detects a potentially offensive message, it'll actually ask you, does this bother you? What do you think about that as a, as a new function? I mean, it's something that we're seeing more and more out of um, not not just Tinder, but, you know, Twitter, Facebook, a, a lot of these sort of apps are doing this sort of pre-regulatory screening of, of comments and things like that. It's, it's just becoming, it's it's one way that these platforms can, I guess, potentially detect when something's going not right. I mean, often the times when I see what messages are actually flagged on Twitter, for example, mm. it's often not what you would think it would be. It's not as, as bad as you would expect, but... Um, yeah, I, I think it's not a, a terrible thing, but I guess you've also got to be careful um, if you're regulating how people are talking. And, you know, the, the stuff that might be being said might be totally consensual be, between both parties. I guess you've just got to be careful. And I, and I guess it could just come back to what I said before. You should be as transparent as possible about what you're flagging, why you're doing it and everything like that so people can get an understanding of why it's being done. I'm glad you brought up Twitter because actually some of the functions do remind me of I guess, new functions that Twitter have brought in in the last few years. So, for example, the the opposite of what I just said is uh, if you're about to send a potentially offensive message, it, the app will ask you, are you sure? Which is something that I think, you know, so Twitter, Meg, for example, have said, you know, if you want to retweet an article that you haven't read, it'll be like, do you want to share this? You haven't read it. Which is funny if you're the person who wrote it, which I, I noticed happens a few times. If we were to step away from Tinder for a second and see how some of that preemptive technology works on other platforms, do you think it does work? Yes, I think anything that we can do, and this is the optimist in me, but anything that we can do to to give you pause for a second to go, wait a second, are you sure that that's what you want to do? For some people, that second might be all they need to to stop them or to prevent them from sending that. And so I I, I think that it is good. I think then you, you throw on the cynic hat and it is the platforms protecting themselves and going, look, no, we are trying to protect our community. These are the, the rules and regulations that we're putting in place. We can't control what everyone does but we are giving them the options and it's up to them to use them. Josh, I'm curious to get your feeling on how these apps are changing that conversation around assault in this space. Because back in 2008, the Queensland police said they'd recorded three alleged rapes linked to online dating apps. Now, by 2019, that had jumped to 49. And and is that a reflection of the role that these apps play in 
in assaults or is that a reflection of how ubiquitous these apps have become? And I, I'm trying to work out where, what the role technology has in what is a terrible, terrible thing that seems to be growing. I think it's yeah. I think it's just a change in in society as well. I think more people are now using the apps now than they were, you know, ten years ago. So I think that's probably where you're seeing that, and, and it's just basically become part of dating life. And the other thing is you probably weren't getting that as many people sort of reporting it back then. So that's probably the other factor that's at play there. Tinder is, of course, I guess the most famous, I suppose, of of the dating apps. How does it compare to the others, Josh? I think it takes itself a bit more seriously in terms of dating apps because there is a, like a much larger heterosexual population on that than, than some of the other apps that particularly like LGBTI people use. So I think it, it does set itself out a bit differently. And, and the other thing is like, particularly with Grindr, for example, they've had a tumultuous couple of years where they were owned by a Chinese company for a while, but then there was concerns about security and then they had to be sold back to an American company. So Tinder is sort of setting itself out as sort of the dating app and, that, and that's why we're seeing these sorts of partnerships. Are there functions that other dating apps have that Tinder should look at? I think I think it's got pretty much all the ones that you want. I think that what sets itself out from a lot of the other apps is that it's much more, it seems much more secure than than a lot of the other ones. Like you, you might get abusive messages through Tinder, but there's less checking going on in some of the other apps. So um, I, I think Tinder's probably approaching it better than a lot of the other ones. How about for you, Omega? There, are there functions out in there? And it doesn't even actually necessarily have to be other dating apps. Are there functions out there in the wider social media space that you think actually that has a place in the Tinders of the world? I float between the apps. I'm not a big fan of the dating apps. I, I would much rather a referral or meeting you the old-fashioned way. Um, but I think that, you know, I like Bumbles where it's, you know, the women can initiate. I like the control on that. But then at the same time, I don't like that because I don't want to have to initiate the conversation all the time. Um, I think each app has its different has its different things and you'll find one that works for you. I've been playing around with Hinge lately and that one seems to be a little bit more honest because you can ask a little bit more questions it's less i mean yes you have your photos on there but it's less photo based it's more what makes you think what makes you tick but hinge is also owned by match who owns tinder so it's it's same same really well i guess it's you know it's analogous to the difference between facebook and and instagram and whatsapp they can be owned by the same company but they clearly speak to different markets i suppose would that like in your experience would that sort of would that track yeah, definitely. I think, um, and and maybe it's just me and the generation that I'm in, but I find Tinder to be a lot younger, Hinge to be a little bit more serious. So yeah, it's exactly like the, you know, meta owning Facebook and, and, and Instagram, different audiences for different products. Download this show is what you're listening to, your guide to the week in media, technology and culture and the ongoing march of cryptocurrencies has hit a wall in Indonesia. Tell me what's happened, Josh. Yeah, so essentially... In Indonesia, they've blocked cryptocurrencies because they say, or they've issued a fatwa against them saying it's against uh, Islamic teachings and everything like that, saying that you can't have cryptocurrency as a form of currency because it doesn't meet the Islamic requirements uh, and everything like that. So it is technically banned, but a lot of people have sort of found ways around it and that, and they are effectively doing that by... It's, it's, it's a little bit not too dissimilar to how... Um, governments around the world are sort of grappling with it. They're, they're effectively saying, if we think of it as an asset and not a currency, then it's okay. And that's that's sort of how a lot of governments are looking at treating it in, in terms of, like, you know, you might not think of it as, as a, 
a currency in and of itself, you know, the way you're, you're spending it on, on products. But if you think of it as something that you trade, then it's completely different. There's been a bit of writing about this, you know, talking to Islamic scholars. But Meg, based on that, could you convey some sense of why it is forbidden under Islamic law? So basically they're saying that it's because it's something that's not tangible. You can't buy the birds in the air. You can't buy the fish in the sea. So how can you buy something like this that isn't tangible? And it doesn't have a set value. So when they compare it to, say, stocks, stocks have a set value and they they rise or fall based off a company's performance. Cryptocurrency is not it's, well, if you look at it as a currency, it doesn't have that same value. It doesn't, it doesn't fluctuate based on a, a, a tangible performance. And of course, famously, Josh, I mean, China has issues with it as well, don't they? Yeah, so China's central bank in September announced that all transactions of cryptocurrency are illegal, effectively banning it as a transaction within China. So, yeah, it's it's something that all, all governments across the world have been dealing with. I mean, our government here hasn't really sort of come to a conclusion. There was a Senate report uh, a couple of months ago that, that has sort of argued for a framework that needs to be established to make it easier to to make it possible for exchanges to be set up in Australia and for banks to stop refusing these exchanges to, to provide them funding and allow them to transact and things like that. But we're still a little way off. You know, Com, ComBank is going to be allowing people to trade cryptocurrencies through their app uh, and I think that's they're the first major bank in Australia to do it so it's something that governments are still figuring out how to deal with I mean the RBA also has warned that it, it could be a fad and, and could be um, you know people's value could go down very quickly uh, but the government at the same time you know this week said it's not a fad people need to get behind it and not not be left behind so it's a bit all over the shop at the moment well i mean i think it's safe to say at this point it's not a fad it's been around i mean conceptually cryptocurrencies have been around for an excess of a decade and now but i think there's still a bit of a gap but tell me if i'm wrong but i feel like we're not quite there with people understanding how it works and 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 how to use it and how to engage with it i guess safely Yeah, no, I I totally agree. And I think where it gets also confusing is the fact that there are so many types of crypto, you know, there's this coin or that coin or this thing. And, and, you know, there's so much new terminology going around it, that sure, your early adopters are into it. And, you know, the pandemic probably brought the knowledge forward a lot faster because people had time on their hands to look at this and probably, you know, spare money because they weren't traveling. So they they didn't mind maybe the risk profile of, of playing around trying to see what was happening. But I don't think it's it's mainstream yet, but we're not that far off. I mean, look, they're, they're talking about it on Saturday Night Live. They're talking about it in, you know, some mainstream media. So we're getting there, but we're not quite there yet. I still think we're sort of in a mode where everyone's sort of throwing everything at the wall and seeing what sticks. And and we're in sort of a bit of a hyper, you know, speculation bubble where a lot of people are investing in cryptocurrency purely because they think the value is going to increase and and they're going to make a lot of money out of it. And it hasn't sort of really settled into what we're going to see finally, whether, you know, is there going to be a stable currency in play? The RBA is also doing some, some work on what it, what a potentially stable coin would look like where it's where it's backed against you know the currency of Australia or anything like that so they're looking at making it work but they haven't quite got the yet. I think the other factor we probably should mention here that is just the amount of energy that is required to be mm. used to generate cryptocurrencies and the environmental impact is obviously something that people are going to be more and more conscious of and and I think that's the other factor I mean there there are um, currencies that are, are trying to be better mined and, and not use energy 
as much as the, the other ones are. But I think that's, that's, that's a factor we have to consider as well. Meg, I want to jump back to something you said that was really interesting, which is the impact of the pandemic. Because you, you were saying earlier that, you know, people had more time, maybe they had more money because they weren't traveling. I also wonder if just the general sense of instability is is something that people are willing to take a risk on something like crypto coin or, or or try it out because the world has seemed so unstable and the world has seemed so volatile. Do you reckon that's a component as well? I hadn't thought about it, but when you put it that way, yeah, I mean, like, what do you have to lose? The world's all going crazy anyways. Let's try something new. And, and as Josh said, throw something at the wall and see what sticks. Yeah, I think that it, it's come at a time when although a lot of people during the pandemic have, have put a lot of trust into government in terms of keeping them safe and getting the vaccine rolled out and everything like that, there is a growing sentiment that, you know, government can't be trusted and, and, and a lot of those does f- uh, feed back into people who might, might want to invest their money in a place that's, uh, you know, a bit outside of regulation and, and can't be traced and everything like that. Yeah, and also, like, attitudes to traditional forms of assets are really shifting, right? You know, young, it's not unique to Australia, but it's obviously a significant issue in Australia that many, many young people in Australia don't feel like they'll ever be able to buy a house or those sorts of things which because of you know and those are traditionally the assets you aim for right so if those assets seem just completely unattainable maybe spending the whatever amount of money you have investing in something like a cryptocurrency maybe that seems like an opportunity as opposed to a risk yeah, I think it's it's a lot of people who want to get caught up on the on the the start of something taking off, whereas a lot of people you know our age and younger look at the property market and just say you know we're basically we've come at the end of the train. It's it's way outside of our field. So I think that I think that is definitely a factor. Well, it's it's a lot of just like making money. Maybe they don't want to invest in the, the stock market because you know they saw their their parents lose money uh, in the in the couple of crashes we've had uh, and and things like that. So it, it, it's probably just. Uh, I guess the confluence of, of where we are at the stage of capitalism and everything like that, where people are looking for something else to do. <laughs> I mean, I suppose uh, the the other side of that is, is there enough uh, awareness of things like scams? I know every time we've ever spoken about, <laughs> every time we've ever spoken about cryptocurrency, the number one uh, correspondence I get is like, you should talk about all the scams that happen. It's like, well, it's, it's worth pointing out that, you know, because it is a new category and lots of people uh, are still only learning how to engage with it, as I said, safely. Meg, do you think there is enough awareness that, you know, people... People can get scammed in these interactions. No, I think there, there's not enough awareness around financial literacy full stop. And I think that, you know, a lot of people you see, oh, so-and-so, my cousin's friend's brother made 50K, you can too. Or, you know, you see on TV, you know, famous people buying in or, or the latest, you know, the Winklevi twins are doubling down on it. And you're like, oh, I want to be a part of that. And and you get wrapped up in, in the excitement and you don't actually understand what it is that you're buying into other than the excitement. And and we're not explaining it properly. We're not teaching people that basic financial literacy. Mm. So just coming back to, to where we started with, uh, with Indonesia, and I guess also to some extent China, those are hugely populous countries with people who are clearly, uh, there's a reasonable enough size populations in both of those nations that want to get involved in, in cryptocurrency. Do you reckon ultimately, Josh, they will just be finding ways to get around it? I think in Indonesia, yes. Um, China will be interesting to watch because they can be quite controlling of, of what the what people in their country do, and they obviously, you know, famously control a lot of internet access as well. So that will be the interesting one to watch. I think if if China has taken this strong stance and keeps it, that might limit the impact that cryptocurrency has globally. But yeah, I think it, it's probably going to be a bit harder to do. If oh well, like if they if they relax a little bit, then it's probably going to take off a bit more than even now that we're already seeing. 
I think where there's a will, there's a way. You know, it, it, it'll come down those that are extremely religious and follow the, the law, the religious letter to the law won't get involved. But those that, that can look at it and say, well, if it's not a currency, but it's an asset, then I'm okay with that. And that's, that's okay with my religion. Meg Coffey, social media strategist with a complicated relationship with social media. Thank you so much for coming back on Download This Show. Thanks for having me. And Josh Taylor from The Guardian, thank you so much. Thank you. I have a complicated relationship with social media too. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna... job. <laughs> I mean, we all do. We all do. <laughs> this is a safe space to share. <laughs> thank you so much, both of you, for being on the show this week. And with that, I shall leave you. My name has been and will likely continue to be Mark Fennell. Thanks for listening to Download This Show. We'll catch you next week. <laughs> 